Shana Tova. If that's how you say that, you know what that is? The greeting for uh, Rosh Hashanah, or as we say in Georgia, Rosh Hashanah. And uh, it's the Jewish New Year this weekend. Uh, the beginning of the High Holy Days, one of the, the two High Holy Days. Uh, Friday started uh, Rosh Hashanah, and uh, that lasts through today by some renderings, and begins the 10 days of awe. 10 days of awe, which is kind of a mini Lenten season, a time for introspection and repentance. They blow the shofar to start the uh, 10 days of awe and have special meals and things. They have apples dipped in honey to celebrate. Uh, With the beginning of the new year, they have green beans and carrots, whereas in Georgia we had collards and black-eyed peas, but I think they mean similar things. And all of it leads up until next Sunday and Monday, which is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Oh, do you care? (laughs) Is that of interest to you beyond just kind of a Rick Steves travelogue? I kind of like to hear things about other cultures' interest. Or does it have a deeper resonance for you than that? Um, The reason I mention it is because the passage we're going to look at today talks about the Jewish roots of Christianity. Uh, that even though since by, you know, late in the first century at least, the Christian church has been predominantly Gentile, that our religion is still a Jewish religion, and Christianity is inescapably Jewish. And we need to know that, and we need to internalize that and feel it, Uh, for the sake of having any kind of maturity and depth in our relationship with God ourselves and understanding what the big story is that he's brought us into as Christians. Uh, It's our family. It's our story, the Jewish family and story. So that's what we're going to think about today. It's going to be from uh, the book of Romans, chapter 11. We've been going through a study of the book of Romans. And um, I've mentioned before that Romans is a hard book, but... None of the chapters is harder than Romans 11. So there may be things you disagree with me about in the sermon. Um, There are smarter people than you and smarter people than me that disagree with me about things I'm going to say in the sermon. So (laughs) you're in good company. But try not to overreach. But see, the main point that Paul's making here uh, about Gentile Christians understanding themselves as uh, being part of the Jewish story. So that's what we're going to think about. Let me pray for us, and then I'll read the scripture. Father, please help us and um, open us to you both intellectually and uh, emotionally and with our attitudes that we might uh, have your heart for Jewish people, both uh, who embrace the Messiah and those who presently reject him. And we pray that you'd let us have your eyes on our own stories as well, that we might understand what it means to be the heirs of your promises. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So read with me, beginning at verse 11 of Romans 11. It says, So I ask, did they stumble, meaning the Jews, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Well, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles... 
How much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, well, don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight... I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And this is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Did you wake up this morning thinking about the Jews as usual? Like most mornings, you wake up thinking, what's to become the Jews? What, how are we supposed to understand the relationship of uh, Jewish unbelief and the Christian church? Pressing stuff, huh? I mean, 2,000 years into it, it feels like questions that have been resolved somewhat, even though they really haven't been resolved as well as you might hope. Christians usually think about the Jews in a couple of situations. Um, One of those is when we start uh, speculating about the end of history and about the return of Jesus at the end of history and trying to get the details down about when we think that might happen and what it might look like. Well, usually you have to account for what happens to Jewish people in this situation. And uh, a lot of the hints that were given in the Bible about the second coming of Christ relate to the Jews. So sometimes we talk about them then. Sometimes Christians will talk about Jews when we have a political argument about the, uh, the state of Israel in the Middle East today and deciding you know, what, how much are Christians obligated to be defensive of and supportive of the state of Israel today. And then lastly, and I think less commonly but needfully, when we see resurgent anti-Semitism, We start talking about the Jews and thinking about how do we keep from making the same mistakes the church has so often made in these areas? uh, And how are we supposed to think again to prevent that? 
So maybe those things we think about the Jews. What Paul's doing here in these three long chapters about uh, the Jews and their relationship to the Messiah in the book of Romans is the bigger picture, though, than that. It's none of those issues uh, directly that he's talking about. He's talking about our story as Christians being totally rooted in and connected to the story of, of the Jews and what God was doing in his promise to Abraham and all through the Old Testament. He's trying to root us in that story to say that's our story. Christianity is inextricably Jewish. And if you don't understand that, you're not going to be great at reading the larger part of the Bible, the Old Testament. You probably won't be very good at reading Paul either because he quotes the Old Testament constantly. And if you don't understand the broader story of what God's doing in the world and how he's included you, then your faith is likely to stay fairly superficial too. So Paul seems to think we need to think well and a fair amount about the Jewishness of Christianity. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to talk about a question or two that he raises directly and then a couple of questions that come to our minds in light of what he says. And the first uh, one of those questions is the main one he's talking about is that how, how are we supposed to make sense of the Jews rejecting Jesus as the Messiah? Like, um, it's just vexing and heartbreaking to think that that the Jews who had every advantage uh, seemed to miss the Messiah when he came. It's commonplace to us. You know, it's been 2,000 years, and, you know, the entrenchments seem to have gotten pretty deep. The people who walk by my house every Saturday morning on the way to synagogue don't seem to stop by very often and ask how they could... Uh, transfer over as Messianic Jews into the Christian church, you know. Um, they seem to have come to terms with their position on the Messiah. Almost all of the church is Gentile and Goy now. But when you read what Paul says here, he's saying that, that ethnic Jews have a remarkably good future in relationship to the Messiah and the Christian church. I mean, remarkably, it sounds crazy what he says almost. He talks in verse 12, he says, if, the, if their trespass means riches for the world, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Full inclusion. I think, gosh, just if, if uh, when I meet a small group of Jews who have embraced Jesus as the Messiah, I'm pretty impressed by that. Paul's talking about the full inclusion of ethnic Jews in the faith of the Messiah. And he's not talking about how uh, they're going to have some other path that's going to make it okay for Jewish people that's different than the path that Christians take, you know, through the Messiah, like the, uh, and the Jews have a different path through there. No, he says there's one tree, right? There's just one people of God and the, all along what God was doing to rescue the world through Abraham's family leading up to the Messiah and on past that is, uh, you know, that is the tree that we've been grafted into. It's a Jewish tree. And some branches that were Jewish have been broken off and can be grafted back in. But he's not describing a different path for ethnic Jews to be right with God. He's describing a great future that ethnic Jews have with the Messiah, Jesus. Which we haven't seen much of yet. It's pretty striking. He says in verse 15... 
If their rejection means reconciliation of the world, the nations, us, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And most of the commentators think that's a reference to Ezekiel 37 where you have Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones where you don't see any signs of life and God is asking Ezekiel, can these bones live? And then uh, in a very dramatic illustration, they come to life. And Paul is saying, this is what we expect to happen within and amongst ethnic Jews is that they would come to life embracing their Messiah finally. And then just in case you weren't sure that's what he was really saying, in verse 25 and 26, he talks about this mystery. He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. And as you might imagine, there are a few different understandings of what that actually means. Yeah. But, I mean, some people think that, that what Paul is describing is something toward the end of history that's like a, a huge revival amongst ethnic Jews coming to embrace the Messiah. Other people say it's the progressive inflow of Jewish uh, people embracing the Messiah progressively as time goes on until the end of history. But you get the idea that Paul is saying that uh, most Jews will be Messianic Jews eventually. And the greater part of Jews who ever live, in retrospect when we look back, will be those who embraced the Messiah. Which doesn't, that, that sounds crazy to us today. It's a, it's a dramatic thing to hope in. But Paul doesn't pull any punches when he talks about it. He even quotes the passage from Isaiah 59 there in verse 26 and 7 that we read earlier in the Old Testament reading where the promise is that a, a Redeemer is going to come to Zion and uh, all the covenant promises are going to be fulfilled and all of God's people are going to find hope in the Redeemer. And so Paul pushes and pushes this. He says the Jews have a great future uh, with their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that's a very hopeful thing. It, it doesn't tell us as much as we might like to know about speculations for the end of history. Um, I'm the last person you want to have speculating about the end of history. But what we are given to hope is that our older brothers are going to come home. And our older brothers are going to come into the party of uh, uh, Christian faith. But it raises a question uh, tangentially to that. And that is, are we supposed to evangelize Jewish people? Are we supposed to try to persuade Jewish people to put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah? And it's kind of an awkward question, because especially after um, our experience in the middle of the last century in Europe and Russia, the, uh, the idea of Christians evangelizing Jews uh, has the stink of anti-Semitism on it. Uh, pretty hard, and it's uh, it's a scary topic for a lot of people. Hopefully, it's a scary topic for us uh, because of our complicity in all of those issues. But we are supposed to evangelize Jews. We are supposed to persuade Jews to put their faith in their Messiah, Jesus. Um, Jesus did this. He persuaded other Jews to put their faith in Jesus the Messiah, uh, pretty explicitly. Paul, a Jewish man, uh, persuaded his fellow Jews 
to put their faith in Jesus the Messiah. You remember when we went through Acts, every time Paul went to a new city, where did he go first? Synagogue. Right? First to the Jew, uh, then to the Gentiles was always his pattern. Even though he knew his main, his main calling was to speak to non-Jews about the Messiah, he always went to the synagogue first. Even in this letter that he wrote, remember in chapter 1 he said, The gospel is the power of God to salvation for anyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. Right? So he persuaded Jewish people to put their hope in Jesus the Messiah. And we do that, too, because we don't have any hope besides Jesus for being right with God for us or anybody else. Our only hope of being right with Jesus and we're right with God is what Jesus has done for us. Uh, it's not in ourselves. We're a mess, as Paul has made very clear and painfully clear in the early parts of, this, of his book to the Romans. So we don't have a different hope until we persuade people, Jew and Gentile, to put their faith in Jesus the Messiah. Is it okay if we do that coercively? Never. We're never justified in being coercive when we try to persuade people about the Christian faith. It's stupid to do so because you can't coerce anybody into faith. Uh, Only Jesus can give people faith. But the temptation to be coercive is is just that, a temptation to sin. Is it okay for us to be disrespectful to people outside the faith when we try to persuade them? Never. Uh, we're commanded in the New Testament uh, to, to be respectful when we speak to people about the faith. Is it okay to hate people if they reject the message of Christianity? Never. Right. Never. It's like you'd be giving yourself credit if you did that. Like Paul says here, you're in the tree by faith, so why are you, why are you being arrogant? It's nothing you earned. We're never supposed to be coercive or disrespectful or hate people if they disagree or uh, be prejudiced against people if they don't accept our message. Uh, Those things are contrary to the Christian gospel. But we are supposed to persuade people to put their faith in the Messiah. But it does raise the question I want to talk about a little more directly of anti-Semitism. Because the church has been extremely complicit in a lot of the world's anti-Semitism. We were later to the party. Uh, The Jews already suffered and were hated pretty broadly before the time of Christ. But since the time that Jesus came, the church has a very terrible track record with regard to anti-Semitic attitudes and behaviors. Well before uh, the reformers, well before the Nazis, in medieval Europe, In almost every country, Jews were not allowed to be citizens, or if they were, their civil rights were very severely curtailed. Uh, It was common in Christian Europe uh, for Jews to be treated uh, very badly and prejudicially. Anti-Semitism was alive early on for the church. Then at the time of the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther, whom I love really loved Martin Luther, but toward the end of his life, he turned toward anti-Semitism in a bizarre and cruel way. Um, Luther's writings are inexplic- they're inexplicably awful about the Jews. 
inexplicably awful. The explanations given to try to excuse what he did are that he, uh, his mental health waned at the end of his life, uh, that he had such terrible problems with gout and indigestion and was so disappointed that the Jews had not responded in faith to the Messiah, that, that he lashed out. But that doesn't come close to explaining uh, Luther's comments about anti-Semitism. They're just terrible. And 400 years after Luther wrote those things, the Nazis, who were no friends to Christianity except uh, treating the church as useful uh, pawns in their political schemes, uh, the Nazis used Luther's writings to justify their anti-Semitism, to justify the Holocaust. And um, the church, for the most part, was complicit with Nazi Germany. We have some beautiful exceptions, but they're exceptions. Because the church was willing, uh, in the name of nationalism, to be co-opted into a movement of great cruelty. And I'm just going to say that those Christians were not dumber than us. And if we think we're not susceptible to anti-Semitic attitudes and practices and being co-opted into that kind of thing, we fool ourselves. Because the church for way too long has made these errors, and that means that we're susceptible to these errors too. And it's very important that we resist these things, especially as anti-Semitism seems to be uh, rising again. My brother-in-law was in Copenhagen on business uh, sometime last year. He said they were walking down the street in Copenhagen, and this is Denmark, you know, I mean, they're nicer than Canadians. And so he's walking down the street, and on one block he said, they saw a huge presence of people who were malicious slash police uh, with you know, large guns uh, patrolling. And he said, what's going on here? And his host said, oh, it's a, there's a synagogue on this block. Like, there's this close to the exposure of the concentration camps in Nazi Germany, we have popular uprisings of anti-Semitism in Europe, but we do. And so for Christians, it's important for us to say and remember that this is totally inappropriate for us. I mean, it's very hard to conceive of how you have Romans 11 and still have a church that becomes anti-Semitic, because what does he say here? He says, it's their olive tree, (laughs) and it's the Jewish tree that you've been grafted into. the branches don't support the root. The root supports the branches. Right? Don't be arrogant toward the Jews. They're your older brothers. Right? You should be in awe that you get to be included in their story rather than being arrogant and condescending towards them because for now they have rejected the Messiah. Um, our attitude towards Jews, believing or not, is, to, is an attitude of thankfulness and of respect and of hope for them to come in. We want our older brothers to come into the party. That's the Christian attitude towards Jews, never one of hatred and resentment, because for now, uh, a lot of them are separated from the tree. So let me dig a little hole now and talk about the question of the state of Israel that has existed since 1948 in Palestine. Are Christians, because of this, obligated 
to lend their political support to the nation of Israel as it exists today, the political entity. And a lot of Christians disagree about this, so you know, just know smarter people than, uh, than me uh, disagree with me on this. But I think from what Paul here says, that, that our answer to that is no. We're not obligated to lend our political support to the state of Israel now. I had a friend who sent me uh, something describing a Christian's perspective on voting. And one of the lines in it was, I must vote for the most pro-Israel candidate because God blesses those who bless Israel and God curses those who curse Israel. Quoted Genesis 9-3 as a reference for that. Genesis 9-3 is the original covenant promise to Abraham where he said, I'm going to use your family to redeem the world. I'll make of you a great nation. All the nations in the world will be blessed through you. And whoever blesses you, I will bless. And whoever curses you, I will curse. Um, The covenant promise to Abraham is what they quote there. But in the New Testament, and reading Paul in particular, who does he say uh, are the inheritors of the promises to Abraham, the covenant promise to Abraham? Is it physical Jews or is it those who are Jews inwardly? If you've been here in Romans, you know he says it's not Jews who are Jews outwardly, but inwardly. It's those who embrace the Messiah, Jesus, in faith are the inheritors of the promises. And this does not describe the nation of Israel now. God's covenant people in the world are Jewish and Gentile believers in the Messiah. God's covenant people in the world today is the church. Jews and Gentiles who accept and follow the Messiah. We expect a great inflow and regathering of ethnically Jewish people into the church to embrace their Messiah. We expect this in some form uh, in the future as we go along. Uh, But this is not a political hope, nor does it take political form. In the New Testament, when you hear language like from the Jewish apostle Peter... When he says, you are a holy nation and a royal priesthood, and you are the exiles of the diaspora, he's talking to Gentile and Jewish believers in the Messiah. He's not speaking to ethnic Jews at that point. He says, we're the fulfillment of that. He says, we're the stones being placed together in the building that creates the temple for God to dwell in by his Holy Spirit. Like what the temple pointed to is what's happening in the church, that we are the stones in the new temple and God's Holy Spirit is like the Shekinah glory presence of God dwelling among us. There's a fulfillment in the church of all that was promised and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And so that means when we think about who is God's holy nation, we don't think of a political entity, but we think of the church. Now, you may have great reasons to support the nation of Israel politically. And part of it may be your affection for our older brothers who are ethnically Jewish, and that seems totally legitimate. But you're not morally obligated to support them right or wrong uh, because they are Israel and have had uh, this connection historically. When God had a political entity on earth, which was the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, uh, those obligations are not there any longer. But you may not support the nation of Israel uh, either, say in their uh, their ongoing disputes with the Palestinians. Uh, You may decide that because there's so many more Palestinian Christians and because there's so much more freedom in Palestine to preach the gospel that you lean toward that side of the debate there. 
Hopefully, Christians will make these decisions based on justice. Who is willing to seek and do justice and lend our support there? But the idea that we're morally obligated as Christians to support the nation of Israel doesn't find support in what Paul says here about Christians and Jews. So, disagree with me at your peril. The point that's pretty clear, though, in what Paul says here is that if you do your genealogy as a Christian, you find out that you're Jewish, right? You may be adopted, like most of us Goy are, but you're Jewish. You've been adopted into a Jewish family, and that's your heritage. So much so that when the Apostle Peter was speaking to the church, Gentile and Jewish believers in the Messiah, he said this, Make sure you keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Isn't that a weird thing to say to Gentiles? Make sure you keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. It sounds like the Amish, you know, saying, be careful out among the English. <laughs> well, he's telling Gentiles to be careful out among the Gentiles because Peter sees them as Jewish. They've been brought into the olive tree, the root of which is God's covenant with Israel. C.S. Lewis said it this way, In a sense, the converted Jew is the only normal human being in the world. <laughs> to him, in the first instance, the promises were made, and he's availed himself of them. He calls Abraham his father by hereditary right, as well as by divine courtesy. He's taken the whole syllabus in order as it was set. He's eaten the dinner according to the menu. Everyone else is, from one point of view, a special case. Most of us are special cases, wild olive branches grafted in. But when we come to the table to meet with the Lord, we go to a Passover table, right? This is a Jewish ceremony. Jesus was celebrating Passover with his disciples when he instituted the supper. And he said, all that this pointed to is fulfilled in me. At the Exodus, when you took a spotless lamb and killed the lamb and put the blood over your door so the uh, avenging angel would pass over your house, not because you're innocent, but because the blood of the innocent victim is over your door, he said, all that pointed to me, I'm the Passover lamb. My blood over your door is what averts the wrath of God. It's what makes you my people so that God's coming to us is to deliver us rather than to crush us. It's all fulfilled in me, he says, but it's a Jewish ritual because it's a Jewish religion. Christianity is Jewish, and the Jewish story is our story. The longing of our hearts and the prayers of our lips are for our elder brothers to be brought in because we want our elder brothers to come into the party. Now let's pray.